everybody. This is Jen Kleinhans. And I'm Rob Foes. And you're listening to another episode of Everybody Hates Your Brand, a podcast where we talk about our thoughts and opinions on marketing, from customer experience to brand and everything in between. Join us today as we talk to Liz Roach, General Manager and Chief Strategy Officer of Havas CXHelia North America. Right. So first things first, before we start this interview, uh, we've had a technical breakthrough, uh, 30 episodes now <laughs> into this process, that both myself and Jen can be both be heard audibly. Jennifer. Yes. There she is. I'm here. I can speak. We're ready. Listen to Let's that. Let's interview. It sounds proper and everything, which is fantastic. Um, so that's a, a real positive for this. Second positive is who we have with us. Um, we've been on a run of really great guests uh, lately, and today is absolutely no exception. This might be our greatest, I have to say. Our greatest. I mean, not, that's not pressure be, right from the get-go. Not to be flattering. To be fair. But- <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's pressure from the start. But I am, or we are always fascinated uh, in talking to leaders within the marketing and the agency world. And we have one with us today, uh, Liz Roach, uh, General Manager and Chief Strategy Officer for Havas CX Helia North America. That's a mouthful to say all in once. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you both. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. It's very kind of you to be here. Um, So when we start these interviews, we usually start with what I like to call the credibility section, which is a bit harsh. But essentially, it means it would give us a bit of a background to you and your career uh, and sort of what you do, what what you're currently doing, so people can get a feel for you and your expertise. So would you mind sort of giving us a bit of background, please? Absolutely. Um, So, you know, I'm I'm GM and CSO of Havasi Exhelia, which uh, now that you say it is a huge mouthful, both from a title perspective and from the name of the agency. Um, But I'm based out of Chicago. We are a customer experience consultancy, focusing a lot on on the customer engagement portion, right? So really that data loyalty CRM section, and that's really where we specialize. It's kind of our sweet spot. Uh, How do we drive performance using first-party data, really capturing that, harnessing that power? And honestly, that's what I have a lot of heart for. Uh, Before Havas, I was at Facebook working in global marketing solutions, specifically for the retail vertical so deeply entrenched in loyalty, uh, I, my focus was in grocery drug. So, you know, all of those uh, Walgreens, you know, Walgreens programs, Kroger programs, things like that. And loyalty was really the centerpiece of that work. Before Facebook, I was at Epsilon and I was working in their d- digital solutions division, doing both data integration work. Uh, as well as category leadership. So I do have a bit of an engineering background. I like to tinker with code. I can write some code. Um, I can do a little bit of database engineering if, if called to it, although I'm a little rusty right now. Um, but I've always kind of been so interested in that intersection of data and business and how can we, how can we make marketing uh, a sales driver, not a cost center. Um, and prior to that, did a stint at Groupon, did a stint at LinkedIn. So I love the tech side. I love the platform side. I love yeah. all that kind of good stuff. And now here you are running uh, a hugely successful uh, agency. The agency model is, uh, it's interesting because there are there are sort of things that are besetting it from all sides. So you've got people, clients taking work in-house. You've got large consulting firms moving into, into, the, into this world, and, you know, buying creative agencies and doing all sorts of things like that. Um, People seem to be less and less keen to set up retainers these days, and, and it's more and more about 
about project work. Do you see those and, and of those, which are the most prevalent for you and, and how are you kind of going about fighting those? Yeah, I think the, the move from retainer to project speaks to me. Um, but mm. I, I don't know if it's about fighting it. For us, we're finding a competitive advantage here. I think it's the size of the team, but also recognizing that we need to adapt the staffing model. We need to adapt the business model to really thrive in this project environment. I think project works the way of the future. When we think about what clients are in housing, it's a lot of those areas of expertise that they can rinse and repeat, right? Things that we can plug and play and and do kind of in perpetuity. They are hiring us for these projects because of the aggregate of our skills, right? The aggregate of the skills and experience um, that they can get from agencies. And and I think that that stuff's really hard to bring in-house. It's really hard to find a, a diverse team of people with these viewpoints after working on such a variety of different projects and clients. So uh, I actually think it's a, a really interesting advantage that we bring to market. And for me specifically coming from kind of that tech background, I look at it as let's convert projects into ARR. Let's not think about retainers. How do we think about annual recurring revenue in such a way that we're not doing the same work next year that we did this year. We're adapting and we're growing alongside our clients and if we are doing the same work over year over year and we're not really progressing them, then to me that that doesn't speak to you know an evolution of a relationship that makes us really crucial to the to the business. Um, so I, I like the project model. I think it's it's definitely worked to our advantage, uh, and we've been able to adapt and pivot to to make sure that those projects do turn into ARR and that we're able to grow alongside clients. Yeah, that's interesting because a lot of times what you'll hear is people talking about retainer versus project base is this idea of like trust and ongoing relationship and that takes time to build. And I think the old school of thinking is basically, well, that has to happen in a retainer because if it's project by project, well, they feel like that can't really happen. But it's interesting because you have that sort of software engineering background to you. It's It, it seems like, yeah, it's project over project, but that's how the trust grows. That's how the relationship grows. That's how the ability to kind of do the right work for the client grows. It's a really interesting perspective. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's, I don't know, it's funny because you're right, the old-fashioned the old fashioned way is a retainer is predictable, mm-hmm. which from a revenue perspective is great because you can layer on, okay, and we know we've got to have this many people. It's easy from a, um, not easy, but it's easier from a staffing perspective as well. You're not having to staff up and down and all those kind of things. You've got this thick base layer of stuff, haven't you? But you're right. I think procurement's had a huge impact on that as well. You know, I think pretty much every pitch now has a procurement person front and center who's pushing value and pushing that sort of stuff as well. That the project by project might be you become a named agency rather than the one on retainer. You're right; it seems to be the way the way things are going. In terms of technology, and you've alluded to the fact that this is your background, and obviously uh, from an engineering background, technology is is so important and yet rapidly changing in in the sort of world of CX CRM loyalty. There's everyone's got a cloud. You know, you know, without a cloud, there's AI platforms like Einstein and Watson and marketing automation, all that kind of stuff. But there are sort of numbers, and I don't know if you see this yourself, that show that a lot of people almost overinvest in technology. They buy a, you know, to use that classic uh, metaphor that everyone uses, they bought a Ferrari, but they haven't got any petrols put in it or gas. Sorry, I should say, given I am outnumbered by Americans today. Um, <laughs> um, is that something that you see? Uh, that kind of underutilization, underutilization of technology, and and what do you, what's your kind of perception on why you think that occurs? Yeah, I mean, a hundred percent. This this is what what's happening. I have a few thoughts on why this is happening. 
think first and foremost, the average tenure of a CMO is, is less than an NFL coach, right? So, so we're looking at <laughs> CMOs, kind of a revolving door of CMOs who come in, want to make big sweeping tech decisions. They don't have the strategic groundwork done. The strategy has to happen first, right? And yeah. we have an advantage. Our agency is a true consultancy in that we don't use the consulting arm as kind of the way in to sell big tech. We'll actually consult on your tech and orchestrate your tech, and we're tech agnostic. We have tons of different certs you know, to, to work with whatever frameworks you have. But I think what we find is we get into these projects with legacy purchase decisions that were made by previous regimes, and the main problem is there wasn't a sound strategy going into it. It was, let's make this big move, right? This big earth shattering move that maybe we can write some, we have a partnership with Asia. Now we're going to put out some press about it, right? Um, but what we find is that data availability becomes the issue. Marketers think they have all of this data at the fingertips, but really the infrastructure might be that, hey, our offline data lives in a silo and our online data lives in a silo. And those two things have never talked. And we have different taxonomies and they can't even talk right now. So actually mm. orchestrating that and putting it to work in a platform becomes nearly impossible because you don't have that background done. And I think there's a, to your point about the, the sort of uh, life expectancy, probably it's <laughs> harsh I'm putting it over, uh, but, but we were, I, I was working on um, Westpac, which is a big bank in Australia, and it's very difficult to get stuff built on their platform where they're CX-based, at least it was back when we, I was working on it. And I was talking to a fellow strategist, and he said he met with one of the guys who was on the board, or was a non-exec chairman, and he said that the problem is that, that nobody is going to spend and justify spending billions of Aussie dollars or millions of hundreds of millions of Aussie dollars ripping the guts out of the system and starting again because the life, the projected payback of that is five, 10 years mm -hmm. and they're on the board for three. <laughs> so there's also that long-term effect of like, oh God, that's no, that's somebody, a future person can deal with that, not me. Yeah, it's an interesting one, right? Because like Peter Drucker talked a lot about this bias for action. And I think that's, that's even more like coming to the fore as you look at like a CMO that might be there for two or three years, right? It's like, well, of course, you know, there's a biased action. If I do something, I must be good. I can point to this thing that I've done instead of maybe taking the time and thinking about strategy. Cause that's the tough thing about strategy is like you need it, but it takes time. Thinking is not always visible. And I think when you have people kind of coming into these high level jobs, like they, they want to look like they've ma they're making an immediate impact. And thinking and strategy does, doesn't always look like it's making an immediate impact. And then I think you compound it with this idea that like, you know, there, there is a lot of short-termism, I think for a lot of reasons. Um, and I think it can be really difficult to have long-term thinking when you know you're only going to make it halfway through, you know, this, uh, this platform adoption process. I also think, and I'd be interested, there's some your perspective on this, that the, the, the tech companies are very good at marketing. They're very good at seduction oh, yeah. of people. They're very good at, mm -hmm. um, look at this majestic world that you could enter into. And, Anything can happen. Yeah. And and I don't know if you, I mean, is that something you, I mean, you must have well, gone through that with Facebook, might be, but this is this, this this utopian world. When they do demos, it's always on beautifully pristine data and everything works immaculately. And then you actually get to work with them and it's like, whew, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think especially with marketers right now, everyone wants to bring in a CDP. I think that's I'm sure I'm sure you guys are seeing that in your end mm -hmm. too. 
CDP. We need a CDP. For those who don't know CDP, customer data platform. Yes. Yes. We we need we need a CDP. We need it. We need it. We need it. And you're right. The sales pitches are beautiful. I mean, the marketing that that these companies are doing is incredible. I think the disconnect is there is so much work that goes into developing that CDP to be actionable and actually pay off from the business point of view that doesn't come with the license, right? It doesn't, it doesn't come with the purchase. There has, there's a lot of work that goes into orchestrating that and making it work within your current infrastructure. And I think that that that's really where the struggle happens. It's, it's a lot of clients who say, okay, we somehow pushed this through approval. We got this thing. I don't know now what to do with it, or I don't know how to make it work. Or I, I don't even know how I can deploy emails out of it, you know, getting very basic and tactical. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we see that all the time. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a story that is, happens all the time. Yeah, I've seen it in times. And, and it, the sort of solutions, as you said, is do your groundwork first. Do your strategy first. Figure out what you're going to try and do over the next year or so, year or two years, and then build off the back of that. Uh, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, look, I'm going to, we, we always agree questions up front um, with our guests, but I'm going to call an audible now. Okay. And given that we're talking about technology, I'm, I'm fascinated by your time at Facebook, um, uh, which you mentioned earlier, and also LinkedIn and those kind of places. Facebook is a divisive topic for a lot of people, whether as an end user or as a marketer, and obviously there's all sorts of fun and games between uh, Tim Cook and Mr. Zuckerberg right now. Um what do you think are the are the biggest misconceptions about? I think I suppose Facebook in general, but also Facebook as a as a marketing tool uh, and tactic. What are, what are the things that people get wrong about Facebook? I think there are probably two things. I think a lot of brands think that because a Kardashian built a business on Instagram, that it's this magic rocket fuel that you just turn on and it goes. It's a self-service platform. Gotcha. There is there's a lot of work that goes into understanding it. And I think on the other side of that misconception, it's that, well, it's a black box. You turn it on and it either works magic and you become a Kardashian, fingers crossed, or you don't do anything and you know, you you hit your slump and, and you just you have to be on there because you you need to keep up with share of voice. Essentially with Facebook, there are so many resources because it's self-service. There are so many resources out there to kind of learn things like auction dynamics and how you can really hack your way to winning. And it's not just a black box. There's a lot you can get get out of it too, right? Uh, especially if you really integrate it into your stack uh, and really integrate your audiences. And if you are segmenting your first party data and activating on Facebook, you can get that really tight closed loop measurement to use it as kind of a testing ground. I I always thought that that was, if I ever started a business, my testing ground would always be a self-service type platform like Facebook, really being able to get that real-time gut check on, is this working? Why or why not? How can I pivot? How can I learn more over the course of a day than, you know, if I was to invest in linear TV, I would learn over a month. So I think, I think there's a mis there's a misconception about the black boxed, uh, nature of Facebook. If we think about the landscape right now, it's it's really just a series of black boxes, whether it's retail media networks, Google, Facebook, Reddit, you name it. Um, more and more of that digital spend is is falling into kind of those walled gardens now. So it's, it's really just a series of walled gardens. It, it's up to marketers and strategy, frankly, to, to start making sense of it. 
and pulling what they can out of it and, and activating to get better. I think you're right about the, the black box thing. It's one of the things that drives me crazy, especially when it comes to things like recommendation engines and, and tools that do that kind of stuff. You know, there's research out there that shows that when you're dealing with a complex system, customers want to understand the cause and effect. So why did you put this in front of me? What have I done that makes this relevant to me? Which I think is why Amazon do so great with their collaborative filtering tools, because it's, you know, people like you bought this or people who bought this, you know, CD. God, to show my age there, aren't I? Christ. People who bought this cassette tape uh, also, <laughs> also, bought, also bought music from these kind of like likely bands. So there's a transparency there. I think my worry with a lot of the black box stuff, particularly when it comes to AI and building propensity models and all that kind of stuff, is you lose that transparency and therefore you can't pass that transparency onto the customer to say this is why. Yeah. You know, that's something that really It's an interesting one me. too, because at a certain level, it's like, well, what is the story you're going to tell? Hmm, exactly, Here's a yeah. paragraph of all the things that you've done over the past six months on this platform mm. that make us think that you might yeah. find this enjoy. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it does become um, a little complex, but like, I agree with you. I think like transparency is, is incredibly important. That's what Netflix I mean, does so brilliantly, like, right? Yeah. I, but like Liz, what, how do you think about sort of like the transparency side of, of like communication and when things get really complex, like how, how do you kind of consider that? Yeah. I, maybe I have a simplistic view on this uh, and, and this might be kind of a, I don't know. I don't know how well received it is, but I do think that there there's a trade that we make as consumers to get the most relevant and enjoyable experiences. No matter what we do, we're going to see 10,000 ads a day, right? It doesn't matter whether or not you're incognito or you're, I guess the only, the only way around it is to live in a bunker and, and avoid screens. But if you're connected and you're living, you're going to see between six and 10,000 brands a day. That's the estimate. So what if those brands could add value to your life? What if they were relevant? I think that's the trade for, for what we give back in terms of data um, and in terms of the trade we make on the privacy side. And I think that transparency is, is certainly important, but I think if you were to offer that long paragraph that we just talked about, about everything you've done and, and why it's yielding this specific ad, mm -hmm. I think we'd be shocked at the few number of people, the small number of people that would actually take us up on it. People would prefer relevance over that detail I, I, any day of the week. That's my viewpoint. I guess I'm just wondering, for that to work, though, that the recommendations, whatever it is, have to be right. So, so in some ways, in some ways, if your AI is perfect, you don't need an explanation because the person will go, "Oh, of course, fuck, that's I, that makes sense, absolutely to me," because I intuitively makes sense to me. I think in some circumstances, though. One of the things that I always strive for is, if, from a communication perspective, is if you had to say to somebody, or somebody would have to go, uh, I get why you sent me that. I might not maybe want it right now, but I get why you sent me that. And sometimes I think some of those black boxes aren't great at that. And having some context around that, I say, you might not want a paragraph, but because you bought, I don't know, I usually gave an example of my video game background, because you bought the late, the last Call of Duty, we're going to sell you the next one. You know what I mean? So you're making a connection between behavior and, and you actually mentioned a phrase I'd never heard before. Uh, option dynamics. Would you, could you, for the num for the, for me, basically, I'll be selfish. Uh, what do you mean by option dynamics? Auction dynamics. Oh, auction yeah. dynamics. Okay. So it's basically my hearing and the fact I'm getting older is the problem more than anything else. Yeah. Just, just how to, how to work the auction. I think that that's a, gotcha. that's an inbiddable media. I think that's a under, under understood 
space right now. So what are the, you got any tips from, from that perspective? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, especially, uh, when the holiday season comes around, you should treat it like you're trading cryptocurrency, (laughs) you know, keep, keep, keep your eye on the ball all day. Understand, understand when you're going to get more efficient, um, when you might have more opportunity, especially if you're not wholly reliant on, you know, a black Friday or a cyber Monday, how can you plan around that and actually, make up for really efficient CPMs on the off days around those holidays where you're still going to get a lot of eyeballs, still have people in that buying mindset, but not necessarily compete with those massive retailers, especially if you're a disruptor brand. We, we saw um, at Facebook specifically a lot of disruptors really gaming that holiday spend of traditional retailers and finding the light days and uh, going all in on those light days to, to try to maximize reach and efficiency. So if you were to pick out a couple of really or a or a couple of decent examples of, of people who've who've really used Facebook well, people you work with maybe when you're at Facebook, would you could you give us a couple of kind of examples of people who've really kind of nailed it, you think? Yeah, I think one one uh, that comes to mind is is Walgreens. Walgreens was doing a loyalty beta when I was at Facebook and they were actually connecting personalized offers to the ads by way of their loyalty program and actually having kind of an opt-in mechanism to confirm that you are part of the loyalty program, validate through a shared API, and then offer up personalized ads. I thought that that was really groundbreaking. I think that Albertsons has always stuck out. Uh, They're a massive retailer in the US and they were always wanting to, um, to test and learn and really figure out ways where they could digitize the circular bring to life a uh, local price and item, which can be a real challenge in that space. And, and I think, you know, trying to, trying to bring that physical experience into the digital world and really add value. I always found that to be uh, a huge endeavor, but really interesting and, and obviously worthwhile. Well, thanks for that. One of the, one of the things that I've, I always find interesting about talking to marketing leaders, especially right now is the, the impact the pandemic has had. And uh, interestingly, I think all of us on this call have started jobs during the pandemic and in some cases are yet to meet (laughs) uh, the people that that we work with on a day-to-day basis um as a as a kind of leader what has impact as a pandemic had on your agency and how have you coped you know how have you tried to kind of keep your team coherent and engaged and interested um be really interested to know how you kind of handled handled that yeah i think it's been actually a really interesting and and good experience in terms of strategic alignment. So for a long time, uh, the agency I operate is in New York, it's in Chicago, Baltimore, and Richmond, Virginia. And with all of those locations, for uh, we kind of had this legacy organizational alignment around geography that wasn't necessarily functional. (laughs) You know, it wasn't let's match these functional teams together. It was we sit in the same space. So let's kind of have things roll up. One shakeup we we made was just kind of looking at all the talent and finding like pieces and actually joining people up with their their tribe, you know, mm. with their with their rightful <laughs> coworkers or their rightful peers uh, and kind of reorganizing teams regardless of location. And we've we've picked up a lot of efficiency, but it's also created a culture of uh, learning and cross-training. People 
you know, learning new languages or learning new platforms, especially in our tech, our, on our tech side, uh, that's, that's been really, really beneficial. So I think in a lot of ways, it's freed us from kind of dealing with these arbitrary geographical reporting lines and let us really just focus on the business and our people within the business and how do we drive it forward. So how common was it before the pandemic then? Or you, I mean, you've joined during sort of the pandemic, but how common was it to just keep things in offices because that's sort of where the business fell? Was it, was it a matter of like delegating to Richmond or Baltimore or wherever it might be just because they were closest to the client or had a certain skill set or whatever, you know, the reason might be. Was that something that was happening a lot and now isn't happening at all? Or do you feel like it's a little bit of a a mash or like a transition into what you're describing? Because I find that really interesting because I think, you know, in the past, like, like I went to grad school in Richmond, so they've got, you know, the Martin agency, they've got a couple of big kind of handful of agencies, but using Richmond as an example, it's, it's not like a major city. I mean, it's a big city, right? Like it's in Virginia, Mm -hmm. it's kind of the middle of Virginia, but it's not like a near New York. It's not near Chicago or in LA. So what would end up happening is you would see the agencies there basically get, maybe with the exception of Martin, but get a lot of like, I guess, local clients, for lack of a better term, because they were the proximity. But what you're saying now is really interesting to me because it sounds like, well, you know, we get a client in and the client may be in LA or wherever, but the best talent for that client is in Richmond or Baltimore, Chicago, wherever it might be. So that's how you're then assembling the teams to work on those clients. Yeah, absolutely. It's... It's purely based on the right team for the right assignment. And I think it applies to my agency, but it also applies to the larger Havas ethos of village, you know, and I think we've been able to take that as a network. We've been able to take village probably to the next level through COVID, uh, thinking through all the global pitch work and the teams that we've been able to assemble for those global pitches and, uh, working together to get the right people, the right lean teams together for some of these more complex challenges um, has worked for us within Havas CX Helia. But I've also seen that really, really exploding in a positive way um, across Havas. It's a bit more reflective of, of kind of how we do it in tech too, right? So Google and Facebook, it's all about cross-functional pods and and assembling this lean pod format to to service a client. And it's not, it's not really rooted in silos. It's rooted in expertise. Uh, and, and in that regard, you know, you have an engineer on the team, you have an account person, you have strategy. And the fact that we're able to replicate that in the agency environment, it bodes well for clients. They get a lot more bang for their buck and they get a lot of the right types of people working on the right types mm. of problems, uh, or challenges for them. When, uh, I mean, I don't think the world's ever going to return to exactly how it was. But when we've all been vaccinated and, you know, travels a little bit more easily and uh, easy to do and all those kind of things, do you think there will be pressure to reverse some of those changes or do you think it, it'll be it'll be just this is just how it is now? I think I think we've all proven that we can do it and that we can thrive in the environment. I also think that certain certain people want to get back to the office for a variety of reasons and certain people do a lot better from home. And I think as leaders, we can continue being really empathetic in our leadership and finding what's going to work for the team. I don't think it's one size fits all. I don't have the butts and seats mentality of, you know, if you're not here until 530, then I don't consider, you know, you adding value to this org. I know that there are a lot of nuances to, to you know, life and 
And this pandemic has, has really proven that. So I think it's going to be some kind of hybrid. And I think there are going to be projects and challenges that require us getting together and scrumming together. But I don't think it's going to be every single day. No, mm, that's really interesting as so for me as an American who's working in the UK, like it's a, it's a very different sort of structure in the country here, right? So we've got w- basically one center of gravity, right? Like you've got London and everybody kind of comes into London versus the US where like, I don't, having not lived in the US for like four or five years now, I would have thought that the US would have been like, run back to the office. We all got to be in the office. Like presenteeism always felt like, I mean, I mean it, take this with a grain of salt because I only worked, I worked for AT&T. So I only worked on the corporate side. I never worked in an agency in the US. But it, it's really interesting that I'm really seeing, you know, people like yourself and like other sort of leaders in the U.S. be like, no, no, we think like hybrid is really working and it's something we want to keep doing. Um, but something you, you said really, it spurred a little bit of a thought for me, which is, was this idea around sort of like diversity and neurodiversity and the different ways that people work and how virtual working is kind of helping them do that. I mean, are you, are you kind of feeling that, that this is virtual environments are giving people who may be you know, or introverts versus extroverts or have different sorts of skill sets where they don't need to be in the office all the time. It's kind of giving them the opportunity to, to shine in a way that maybe being in the office all the time hadn't. 100%. I, I know that, I know there are team members who have a lot of anxiety around being in groups and being in the office and, and being around, you know, teams and feel a lot more comfortable at home. And can function better at home. And I think if, if we're able to get the same level of work and take that stress or emotional, emotional um, distraction away from folks and, and really let them do what they're good at, I think that's, that's the positive. Operating a small agency, you have to be strengths-based. You can't hire people because you want to just develop their weakness, develop their weakness, develop their weakness. We hire people, especially because we're project-based. A lot of our work is project-based, right? We are hiring people who are experts in what they do, and they are phenomenal at what they do. And if they want to do that from Antarctica, but they can still keep, you know, Central or Eastern time zone hours, then then I'm cool with that. Um, especially if it really lets them play to their strengths and, and find more joy in the work. I, I think that's the other piece. We do this because it's fun, right? Like. If we wanted, if we wanted um, unfun jobs, we would have probably not gone into marketing. But we all decided at some point in time that we wanted to have some fun, and so we got into this business. and And I think that looks different for everyone. It, it might not. It doesn't mean for some that I want to go into an office and be surrounded by fifty to hundred other people, and then go out for drinks every night. For some people, that fun is I'm at home, I have uh, peace and quiet, and I'm able to really focus on what brings me joy. You know, whether that's doing that engineering work or doing that data work or building models, et cetera. And it'll be interesting to me because, you know, the world is to a de- has historically been to a degree built for extroverts. Yep. It's built, yeah. you know, to, to some degree for the loud, for the, for the gregarious. And I think a lot of the people who are that way are, are feeling very uncomfortable, but all it is is a reversal of actually this is how introverts have felt for the last 50, 60, however many, however many years this kind of office culture has been in place. And I think you're absolutely right. Trying to figure out how you can deliver against both is going to be fun. And there'll be technology bits to that. There'll be cultural bits to that. And it's going to be really interesting. Diversity was mentioned by, by Jen from a sort of neurodiversity uh, perspective. But it's, it's a huge issue, I think, across the board for agencies um, 
whether that's ageism and we've we've done a podcast on on ageism uh in agent in agencies to sexism racism what does have cx helia do to try and create a more diverse profile because uh in in a lot of agencies i see still a lot of white middle class people and and uh it's something that's always kind of infuriated me so what is it that you you're doing uh to help help in that space yeah i think we acknowledge that diversity is key right uh, especially when it comes to strategy and, and building that that framework or or really doing that foundational work for any type of customer engagement consumers look like every every different you know every different walk of life right and and we need to find a balance of representation. And I think it, it starts and stops with, with talent. Um, and, and we've, we've really made an active, uh, or we're active in diverse hiring practices and also trying to ensure that this place of work is one that is uh, great for diverse talent to work at. Um, whether that's, you know, diverse in age, neurodiversity, uh, gender diverse, diversity, racial diversity, um, socioeconomic, or the like. We want to to yes do our hiring practices in such a way that that feed that pipeline, but also it has we have to practice what we preach. We can't create kind of um, an environment that that doesn't doesn't allow that diverse talent to really grow and thrive. And I think that's that's really been on our leadership and and on all of us to to be empathetic and to really invest time and resources into making sure we're creating the space. And it comes with, yes, doing trainings, but also having open conversations about where are we falling short? How can we do better? And how can we create really open, safe space for voices to be heard um, and, and be known as a place that is great to work for um, if you're diverse talent? So that's that's kind of the the approach we're taking. I know Havas on the whole. I sit on the um, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Council for North America. So there's a lot of resources coming down from from you know that North America level, but the work has to be done on the ground as well. I have to say, so um, Liz and I worked together very briefly. I did a bit of freelance work for Havas CX Helia uh, on on a pitch recently, and I found it so refreshing when you said you actually you need a male perspective on a particular product because your team is your strategy strategy team is all women and it was it was such a wonderfully refreshing <laughs> refreshing thing to hear uh, that the the strategy team was all female and 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 actually the issue was there wasn't there wasn't male representation which is how extraordinarily rare that is um and you know so fantastic well look uh, thank you for spending time with us uh, we really appreciate we appreciate you coming on uh, and spending your your time. Time zones is always a fun thing to deal with as well. Uh, so so thank you very much for for coming on and joining us today. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you. We do have one last thing. We usually allow uh, our guests what we call the shill section. Okay. So if you have anything you'd like to mention, any you know you want to mention how to get in touch with have CX Helia, if you've got a book, you've got a podcast, whatever it might be. Uh, we allow a little bit of spotlight time at the end. So if there is anything you'd like to shill, uh, the spotlight is yours now. So take it away. Okay. Well, I, I don't have a, I don't have a podcast. Um, this is, this is my, this is the only podcast I've actually been on. So thank you. Thank you both for having me. 
Um, and we don't, I don't necessarily have a book or a publication as of, as of yet, maybe, maybe someday, uh, remains to be seen. Um, but I want to recommend a book for other leaders, uh, out there and that's how to be an anti-racist. I think it's crucial reading for all of us in leadership positions and, um, really helps us become not only allies, but, but people who can take action, uh, in, in terms of driving equity and inclusion forward. So, um, I would mention that. And I guess if you want to get in touch with me, hit me up on LinkedIn, Liz Roach, or um, you can find you can find us via our website, um, HavasHeliaNA.com. Uh, and you can submit anything in from from that way. But but thank you again for having me. It was a great time. No, absolutely. Yeah, thanks and, for coming on. We appreciate it. And for anybody who's looking for those uh, references and, and hasn't written them down, we will put them in the show notes with links so people can can link out to those. Once again, thanks very much. Great. Thank you. Well, you did it. You've wasted another perfectly good half an hour or so with Rob and Jen and the Everybody Hates Your Brand podcast. Again, you can find us on everybodyhatesyourbrand.com and your podcast platform of choice. Have a week. Take great, great care and be vigilant.